Book Four, Chapter Twenty Seven of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Four, Chapter Twenty Seven. The next morning, Catherine, finding that Robert still slept on after their usual waking time, and remembering his exhaustion of the night before, left him softly and kept the house quiet that he might not be disturbed. She was in charge of the now toddling Mary in the dining-room when the door opened and Robert appeared. At sight of him she sprang up with a half-cry. The face seemed to have lost all its fresh colour, its look of sun and air. The eyes were sunk, the lips and chin lined and drawn. It was like a face from which the youth had suddenly been struck out. "'Robert!' But her question died on her lips. "'A bad night, darling, and a bad headache,' he said, groping his way, as it seemed to her, to the table, his hand leaning on her arm. "'Give me some breakfast.' She restrained herself at once, put him into an armchair by the window, and cared for him in her tender, noiseless way. But she had grown almost as pale as he, and her heart was like lead. "'Will you send me off for the day to Thurston Ponds?' he said presently, trying to smile with lips so stiff and nerveless that the will had small control over them. "'Can you walk so far? You did overdo it yesterday, you know. You've never got over mile end, Robert.' But her voice had a note in it which in his weakness he could hardly bear. He thirsted to be alone again, to be able to think over quietly what was best for her, for them both. There must be a next step, and in her neighbourhood he was too feeble, too tortured to decide upon it. "'No more, dear, no more,' he said impatiently, as she tried to feed him. Then he added as he rose, "'Don't make arrangements for our going next week, Catherine. It can't be so soon.' Catherine looked at him with eyes of utter dismay. The sustaining hope of all these difficult weeks, which had slipped with such terrible unexpectedness into their happy life, was swept away from her. "'Robert, you ought to go.' "'I have too many things to arrange,' he said sharply, almost irritably. Then his tone changed. "'Don't urge it, Catherine.' His eyes, in their weariness, seemed to entreat her not to argue. She stooped and kissed him, her lips trembling. "'When do you want to go to Thurston?' "'As soon as possible. Can you find me my fishing-basket and get me some sandwiches? I shall only lounge there and take it easy.' She did everything for him that wifely hands could do. Then, when his fishing-basket was strapped on and his lunch was slipped into the capacious pocket of the well-worn shooting-coat, she threw her arms round him. "'Robert, you will come away soon?' He roused himself and kissed her. "'I will,' he said simply withdrawing, however, from her grasp, as though he could not bear those close, pleading eyes. "'Good-bye. I shall be back some time in the afternoon.' From her post beside the study window she watched him take the short cut across the cornfield. She was miserable, and all at sea. A week ago he had been so like himself again, and now? Never had she seen him in anything like this state of physical and mental collapse. "'Oh, Robert!' she cried under her breath with an abandonment like a child's, strong soul that she was. "'Why won't you tell me, dear? Why won't you let me share? I might help you through. I might.' She supposed he must be again in trouble of mind. A weaker woman would have implored, tormented, till she knew all. Catherine's there is strength and delicacy of nature, and that respect which was inbred in her for the sacra of the inner life, 
stood in her way. She could not catechise him and force his confidence on this subject of all others. It must be given freely. And, oh, it was so long in coming! Surely, surely it must be mainly physical, the result of overstrain, expressing itself in characteristic mental worry, just as daily life reproduces itself in dreams. The worldly man suffers at such times through worldly things, the religious man through his religion. Comforting herself a little with thoughts of this kind, and with certain more or less vague preparations for departure, Catherine got through the morning as best she might. Meanwhile, Robert was trudging along to Thurston, under a sky which, after a few threatening showers, promised once more to be a sky of intense heat. He had with him all the tackle necessary for spooning pike, a sport the novelty and success of which had hugely commended it the year before to those Esau-like instincts Muirworld had so much developed in him. And now, oh, the weariness of the August warmth and the long stretches of sandy road! By the time he reached the ponds he was tired out, but instead of stopping at the largest of the three, where a picturesque group of old brick cottages brought a reminder of man and his works into the prairie solitude of the common, he pushed on to a smaller pond just beyond, now hidden in a green cloud of birchwood. Here, after pushing his way through the closely set trees, he made some futile attempts at fishing, only to put up his rod long before the morning was over, and lay it beside him on the bank. And there he sat for hours, vaguely watching the reflection of the clouds, the gambols and quarrels of the waterfowl, the ways of the birds, the alternations of sun and shadow on the softly moving trees, the real self of him passing all the while through an interminable inward drama, starting from the past, stretching to the future, steeped in passion, in pity, in regret. He thought of the feelings with which he had taken orders, of Oxford scenes and Oxford persons, of the efforts, the pains, the successes of his first year at Muirwell. What a ghastly mistake it had all been! He felt a kind of sore contempt for himself, for his own lack of prescience, of self-knowledge. His life looked to him so shallow and worthless. How does a man ever retrieve such a false step? He groaned aloud as he thought of Catherine linked to one born to defeat her hopes, and all that natural pride that a woman feels in the strength and consistency of the man she loves. As he sat there by the water, he touched the depths of self-humiliation. As to religious belief, everything was a chaos. What might be to him the ultimate forms and conditions of thought, the tired mind was quite incapable of divining. To every stage in the process of destruction it was feverishly alive. But its formative energy was for the moment gone. The foundations were swept away, and everything must be built up afresh. Only the habit of faith held, the close instinctive clinging to a power beyond sense, a goodness, a will, not man's. The soul had been stripped of its old defences, but at his worst there was never a moment when Ellesmere felt himself utterly forsaken. But his people, his work! Every now and then, into the fragmentary debate still going on within him, there would flash little pictures of Muirwell. The green, with the sun on the house-fronts, the awning over the village shop, the vane on the old manor-house, the familiar figures at the doors, his church, with every figure in the Sunday congregation as clear to him as though he were there that moment in the pulpit. The children he had taught, 
as sick he had nursed. This or that weather-beaten or brutalised peasant whose history he knew, whose tragic secrets he had learnt. All these memories and images clung about him as though with ghostly hands, asking, Why would you desert us? You are ours. Stay with us. Then his thoughts would run over the future, dwelling with a tense, realistic sharpness on every detail which lay before him. The arrangements with his locum tenens, the interview with the bishop, the parting with the rectory. It even occurred to him to wonder what must be done with Martha and his mother's cottage. His mother! As he thought of her, a wave of unutterable longing rose and broke. The difficult tears stood in his eyes. He had a strange conviction of that that this crisis of his life she of all human beings would have understood him best. When would the squire know? He pictured the interview with him, divining with the same abnormal clearness of inward vision Mr. Wendover's start of mingled triumph and impatience, triumph in the new recruit, impatient with the quixotic folly which could lead a man to look upon orthodox dogma as a thing real enough to be publicly renounced, or clerical pledges as more than a form of words. So henceforth he was on the same side with the squire, held by an indiscriminating world as bound to the same negations, the same hostilities. The thought roused in him a sudden fierceness of moral repugnance. The squire and Edward Langham, they were the only sceptics of whom he had ever had close and personal experience. And with all his old affection for Langham, all his frank sense of pliancy in the squire's hands, yet in this strait of life how he shrinks from them both. Souls at war with life and man, without holiness, without perfume. Is it the law of things? Once loosen a man's religio, once fling away the old binding elements, the old traditional restraints which have made him what he is, a moral deterioration is certain. How often had he heard it said? How often he had endorsed it? Is it true? His heart grows cold within him. What good man can ever contemplate with patience the loss, not of friends or happiness, but of his best self? What shall it profit a man, indeed, if he gains the whole world? the whole world of knowledge and speculation, and lose his own soul. And then, for his endless comfort, there rose on the inward eye the vision of an Oxford lecture-room, of a short, sturdy figure, of a great brow over honest eyes, of words alive with moral passion, of thought instinct with the beauty of holiness. Thank God for the saint in Henry Gray. Thinking of it, Robert felt his own self-respect reborn. Oh, to see Gray in the flesh, to get his advice, his approval! Even though it was the depth of vacation, Gray was so closely connected with the town, as distinguished from the university life of Oxford, it might be quite possible to find him at home. Elsmere suddenly determined to find out at once if he could be seen, and if so, he would go over to Oxford at once. This should be the next step, and he would say nothing to Catherine till afterwards. He felt himself so dull, so weary, so resourceless. Gray should help and counsel him, should send him back with a clearer brain, a quicker ingenuity of love, better furnished against her pain and his own. Then everything else was forgotten, and he thought of nothing but that grisly moment of waking in the empty room, when, still believing at night, he had put out his hand for his wife, and with a superstitious pang had felt himself alone. 
his heart torn with a hundred inarticulate cries of memory and grief, he sat on beside the water, unconscious of the passing of time, his grey eyes staring sightlessly at the wood-pigeons as they flew past him, at the occasional flash of a kingfisher, at the moving panorama of summer clouds above the trees opposite. At last he was startled back to consciousness by the fall of a few heavy drops of warm rain. He looked at his watch. It was nearly four o'clock. He rose, stiff and cramped with sitting, and at the same instant he saw beyond the birchwood on the open stretch of common a boy's figure, which, after a step or two, he recognised as Ned Irwin. "'You here, Ned?' he said, stopping, the pastoral temper in him reasserting itself at once. "'Why aren't you harvesting?' "'Please, sir, I've finished with the whole meadows yesterday, and Mr. Carter's job don't begin till to-morrow. He's got a machine coming from Whitley, he have, and they won't let him have it till Thursday, so I've been out after things for the club.' And opening the tin-box strapped on his back, he showed the day's capture of butterflies and some belated bird's eggs, the plunder of a bit of common where the turf for the winter's burning was just being cut. "'Goat-sucker, linnet, stone-chat,' said the rector, fingering them. "'Well done for August, Ned. "'If you haven't got anything better to do with them, "'give them to that small boy of Mr. Carter's that's been ill so long. "'He'd thank you for them, I know.' "'The lad nodded with a guttural sound of assent. "'Then his new-born scientific ardour seemed to struggle "'with his rustic costiveness of speech. "'I've been just watching a queer creature,' he said at last hurriedly. "'I believe he's that'n.' "'And he pulled out a well-thumbed handbook "'and pointed to a cut of the grasshopper warbler.' "'Whereabouts?' asked Robert, wondering the while at his own start of interest. "'In that bit of common to the other side of the big pond,' said Ned, pointing, his brick-red countenance kindling into suppressed excitement. "'Come and show me,' said the rector, and the two went off together. And sure enough, after a little beating about, they heard the note which had roused to the lad's curiosity, the loud whirr of a creature that should have been a grasshopper and was not.' They stalked the bird a few yards, stooping and crouching, Robert's eager hand on the boy's arm, whenever the clumsy rustic movements made too much noise among the underwood. They watched it, uttering its jarring, imitative note on bush after bush, just dropping to the ground as they came near, and flitting a yard or two farther, but otherwise showing no sign of alarm at their presence. Then suddenly the impulse which had been leading him on died in the rector. He stood upright with a long sigh. "'I must go home, Ned,' he said abruptly. "'Where are you off to?' "'Please, sir, my, my sister at the cottage. "'Her is married Jim, the underkeeper. "'I've been going there for me tea.' "'Come along, then. "'We can go together.' They trudged along in silence. Presently Robert turned on his companion. "'Ned, this natural history has been a fine thing for you, my lad. "'Mind you stick to it. "'That and good work will make a man of you. "'When I go away—' The boy started and stopped dead, his dumb animal eyes fixed on his companion. "'You know I shall soon be going off on my holiday,' said Robert, smiling faintly, adding hurriedly as the boy's face resumed its ordinary expression. "'But some day, Ned, I shall go for good. I don't know whether you've been depending on me, you and some of the others. I think perhaps you have. If so, don't depend on me, Ned, any more. It must all come to an end. Everything must. Everything.' except the struggle to be a man in the world and not a beast, to make one's heart clean and soft and not hard and vile. That is the one thing that matters and lasts. Never forget that, Ned. 
never forget it.' He stood still, towering over the slouching, thick-set form beside him, his pale intensity of look giving a rare dignity and beauty to the face which owed so little of its attractiveness to comeliness of feature. He had the makings of a true shepherd of men, and his mind as he spoke was crossed by a hundred different currents of feeling—bitterness, pain, and yearning unspeakable. No man could feel the wrench that lay before him more than he. Ned Irwin said not a word. His heavy lids were dropped over his deep-set eye. He stood motionless, nervously fiddling with his butterfly net. Awkwardness, and, as it seemed, irresponsiveness in his whole attitude. Robert gathered himself together. "'Well, good-night, my lad,' he said, with a change of tone. "'Good luck to you. Be off to your tea.' And he turned away, striding swiftly over the short, burnt August grass, in the direction of the Muirwell woods, which rose in a blue haze of heat against the slumberous afternoon sky. He had not gone a hundred yards before he heard a clattering after him. He stopped, and Ned came up with him. "'They're heavy, them things,' said the boy, desperately blurting it out, and pointing, with heaving chest and panting breath, to the rod and basket. "'I'm going that way. I can leave them at the rectory.' Robert's eyes gleamed. "'They're no weight, Ned. Cause why, I've been lazy and caught no fish.' But there! After a moment's hesitation, he slipped off the basket and rod, and put them into the begrimed hand held out for them. "'Bring them when you like. I don't know when I shall want them again. Thank you, and God bless you.' The boy was off with his booty in a second. "'Perhaps he'd like to think it did it for me, by and by,' said Robert sadly to himself, moving on a little moisture in the clear grey eye. About three o'clock next day Robert was in Oxford. The night before he had telegraphed to ask if Gray was at home. The reply had been, "'Here for a week on way north. Come by all means.' Oh, that look of Catherine's when he had told her of his plan, trying in vain to make it look merely casual and ordinary. "'It's more than a year since I've set eyes on Gray, Catherine, and the day's change would be a boon. I could stay the night at Merton and get home early next day.' But as he turned a pleading look on her, he had been startled by the sudden rigidity of face and form. Her silence had in it an intense, almost a haughty, reproach, which he was too keenly hurt to put into words. He caught her by the arm and drew her forcibly to him. There he made her look into the eyes which were full of nothing but the most passionate, imploring affection. "'Have patience a little more, Catherine,' he just murmured. "'Oh, how I have blessed you for silence! Only till I come back!' "'Till you come back,' she repeated slowly. "'I cannot bear it any longer, Robert, that you should give others your confidence, and not me.' He groaned and let her go. No, there should be but one day more of silence, and that day was interposed for her sake. If Gray, from his calmer standpoint, bade him wait and test himself before taking any irrevocable step, he would obey him, and if so, the worst pang of all need not yet be inflicted on Catherine though as to his state of mind he would be perfectly open with her. A few hours later his cab deposited him at the well-known door. It seemed to him that he and the scorched plane-trees lining the side of the road were the only living things in the wide, sun-beaten street. Every house was shut up. Only the greys' open windows, amid their shuttered neighbours, had a friendly human air. Yes, Mr. Grey was in, and expecting Mr. Ellesmere.
Robert climbed the dim, familiar staircase, his heart beating fast. "'Elsmere, this is a piece of good fortune.' And the two men, after a grasp of the hand, stood fronting each other. Mr. Gray, a light of pleasure on the rugged, dark-complexioned face, looking up at his taller and paler visitor. But Robert could find nothing to say in return, and in an instant Mr. Gray's quick eyes detected the strained, nervous emotion of the man before him. "'Come and sit down, Elsmere. There, in the window, where we can talk. One has to live on this east side of the house, this weather.' "'In the first place,' said Mr. Gray, scrutinising him, as he returned to his own book-littered corner of the window-seat, "'in the first place, my dear fellow, I can't congratulate you on your appearance. I never saw a man look in worse condition to be up and about.' Well, "'That's nothing,' said Robert, almost impatiently. "'I want a holiday, I believe.' "'Gray,' and he looked nervously out over garden and apple-trees, "'I have come, very selfishly, to ask your advice, to throw a trouble upon you, to claim all your friendship can give me.' He stopped. Mr. Gray was silent, his expression changing instantly, the bright eyes profoundly, anxiously attentive. "'I have just come to the conclusion,' said Robert, after a moment, with quick abruptness, "'that I ought now, at this moment, to leave the church, and give up my living, for reasons which I will describe to you. But before I act on the conclusion, I wanted the light of your mind upon it, seeing that, that other persons than myself are concerned.' "'Give up your living?' echoed Mr. Gray, in a low voice of astonishment. He sat looking at the face and figure of the man before him, with a half-frowning expression. How often Robert had seen some rash, exuberant youth quelled by that momentary frown! Essentially conservative, as was the inmost nature of the man, for all his radicalism there were few things for which Henry Gray felt more instinctive distaste than for unsteadiness of will and purpose, however glorified by fine names. Robert knew it, and, strangely enough, felt for a moment in the presence of the heretical tutor as a culprit before a judge. "'It is, of course, a matter of opinions,' he said with an effort. "'Do you remember, before I took orders, asking whether I ever had difficulties, and I told you that I had probably never gone deep enough? It was profoundly true, though I didn't really mean it. But this year—no, no, I have not been merely vain and hasty. I may be a shadow creature—' but it has been natural growth, not wantonness." And at last his eyes met Mr. Gray's firmly, almost with solemnity. It was as if, in the last few moments, he had been instinctively testing the quality of his own conduct and motives by the touchstone of the rare personality beside him, and they had stood the trial. There was such pain, such sincerity, above all such freedom from littleness of soul, implied in words and look, that Mr. Gray quickly held out his hand. Robert grasped it, and felt that the way was clear before him. "'Will you give me an account of it?' said Mr. Gray, and his tone was grave sympathy itself. "'Or would you rather confine yourself to generalities and accomplished facts?' "'I will try and give you an account of it,' said Robert, and sitting there with his elbows on his knees, his gaze fixed on the yellowing afternoon sky, and the intricacies of the garden walls between them and the new museum, he went through the history of the last two years. He described the beginnings of his historical work, the gradual enlargement of the mind's horizons, and the intrusion within them of question after question, and subject after subject. Then he mentioned the squire's name. 
"'Ah!' exclaimed Mr. Gray. "'I've forgotten you were that man's neighbour. "'I wonder he didn't set you against the whole business, "'inhuman old cynic!' He spoke with the strong dislike of the idealist, devoted in practice to an everyday ministry to human need for the intellectual egotist. Robert caught and relished the old pugnacious flash in the eye, the midland strength of accent. Cynic he is, not altogether inhuman, I think. I fought him about his drains and his cottages, however, and he smiled sadly, before I began to read his books. But the man's genius is incontestable his learning enormous. He found me in a susceptible state, and I recognised that his influence immensely accelerated a process already begun. Mr. Gray was struck with the simplicity and fullness of the avowal. A lesser man would hardly have made it in the same way. Rising to pace up and down the room, the familiar action recalling vividly to Robert the Sunday afternoons of bygone years, he began to put questions with a clearness and decision that made them so many guides to the man answering through the tangle of his own recollections. "'I see,' said the tutor at last, his hands in the pockets of his short grey coat, his brow bent and thoughtful. "'Well, the process in you has been the typical process of the present day. Abstract thought has had little or nothing to say to it. It has all been a question of literary and historical evidence. I am old-fashioned enough,' and he smiled to stick to the a priori impossibility of miracles. But then I am a philosopher. You've come to see how a miracle is manufactured, to recognise in it merely a natural, inevitable outgrowth of human testimony in its pre-scientific stages. It has been all experimental, inductive. I imagine—he looked up—you didn't get much help out of the orthodox apologists. Robert shrugged his shoulders. It often seemed to me— he said drearily. I might have got through, but for the men whose books I used to read and respect most in old days. The point of view is generally so extraordinarily limited. Westcott, for instance, who means so much nowadays to the English religious world, first isolates Christianity from all the other religious phenomena of the world, and then argues upon its details. He might as well isolate English jurisprudence and discuss its details without any reference to Teutonic custom or Roman law. You may be as logical or as learned as you like, within the limits chosen, but the whole result is false. You treat Christian witness and biblical literature as you would treat no other witness, and no other literature in the world, and you cannot show cause enough. But so you go on, arguing in a circle, ad infinitum. But his voice dropped. The momentary eagerness died away as quickly as it had risen, leaving nothing but depression behind it. Mr. Gray meditated. At last he said, with a delicate change of tone, "'And now, if I may ask it, Elsmere, how far has this destructive process gone?' "'I can't tell you,' said Robert, turning away almost with a groan. "'I only know that the things I loved once I love still, and that, that if I had the heart to think at all I should see more of God in the world than I ever saw before.' The tutor's eyes flashed. Robert had gone back to the window and was miserably looking out. After all, he had told only half his story. "'And so you feel you must give up your living?' "'What else is there for me to do?' cried Robert, turning upon him, startled by the slow, deliberate tone. "'Well, of course, you know that there are many men, men with whom both you and I are acquainted, 
who hold very much what I imagine your opinions now are, or will settle into, who are still in the Church of England, doing admirable work there.' "'I know,' said Elsmere quickly. "'I know. I cannot conceive it, nor could you.' "'Imagine standing up Sunday after Sunday to say the things you do not believe, using words as a convention which those who hear you receive as literal truth, and trusting the maintenance of your position either to your neighbour's forbearance or to your own powers of evasion. With the ideas at present in my head, nothing would induce me to preach another Easter-day sermon to a congregation that have both a moral and a legal right to demand from me an implicit belief in the material miracle. Yes, said the other gravely. Yes, I believe you are right. It can't be said that the broad church movement has helped us much. How greatly it promised! How little it has performed! For the private person, the worshipper, it is different. Or I think so. No man pries into our prayers, and to cut ourselves off from common worship is to lose that fellowship which is in itself a, a witness and vehicle of God. But his tone had grown hesitating, and touched with melancholy. There was a moment's silence. Then Robert walked up to him again. At the same time, he said falteringly, standing before the elder man, as he might have stood as an undergraduate, let me not be rash. If you think this change has been too rapid to last, if you know me better than at this moment I can know myself, if you bid me wait a while before I take any overt step, I will wait. Oh, God knows I will wait. My wife— And his husky voice failed him utterly. Your wife? cried Mr. Gray, startled. Mrs. Elsmere does not know. My wife knows nothing, or almost nothing, and it will break her heart. He moved hastily away again, and stood with his back to his friend, his tall, narrow form outlined against the window. Mr. Gray was left in dismay, rapidly turning over the impressions of Catherine left on him by his last year's sight of her. That pale, distinguished woman, with her look of strength and character, he remembered Langham's analysis of her, and of the silent religious intensity she had brought with her from her training among the northern hills. Was there a bitterly human tragedy, preparing under all this thought-drama he had been listening to? Deeply moved, he went up to Robert, and laid his rugged hand almost timidly upon him. Elsmere, it won't break her heart. You are a good man. She is a good woman. What an infinity of meaning there was in the simple words. Take courage. Tell her at once. Tell her everything. And let her decide whether there shall be any waiting. I cannot help you there. She can. She will probably understand you better than you understand yourself. He tightened his grasp, and gently pushed his guest into a chair beside him. Robert was deadly pale, his face quivering painfully. The long physical strain of the past months had weakened for the moment all the controlling forces of the will. Mr. Gray stood over him, the whole man dilating, expanding, under a tyrannous stress of feeling. "'It is hard. It is bitter,' he said slowly, with a wonderful manly tenderness. "'I know it. I have gone through it. So has many and many a poor soul that you and I have known.' But there need be no sting in the wound, unless we ourselves envenom it. I know, I know very well, the man of the world scoffs. But to him who has once been a Christian of the old sort, the parting with the Christian mythology 
is the rending asunder of bones and marrow. It means parting with half the confidence, half the joy of life. But take heart, and the tone grew more solemn, still more penetrating. It is the education of God. Do not imagine it will put you farther from Him. He is in criticism, in science, in doubt, so long as the doubt is a pure and honest doubt, as yours is. He is in all life, in all thought. The thought of man, as it has shaped itself in institutions, in philosophies, in science, in patient critical work, or in the life of charity, is the one continuous revelation of God. Look for him in it all. See how, little by little, the divine indwelling force, using as its tools, but merely as its tools, man's physical appetites and conditions, has built up conscience and the moral life. Think how every faculty of the mind has been trained in turn to take its part in the great work of faith upon the visible world. Love and imagination built up religion. Shall reason destroy it? No. Reason is God's like the rest. Trust it. Trust Him. The leading strings of the past are dropping from you. They are dropping from the world, not wantonly or by chance, but in the providence of God. Learn the lesson of your own pain. Learn to seek God, not in any single event of past history, but in your own soul, in the constant verifications of experience, in the life of Christian love. Spiritually, you've gone through the last wrench, I promise it to you. You being what you are, nothing can cut this ground from under your feet. Whatever may have been the forms of human belief, faith, the faith which saves, has always been rooted here. All things change, creeds and philosophies and outward systems, but God remains. Life that in me has rest, as I, undying life, have power in thee. The lines dropped with low vibrating force, from lips unaccustomed indeed to such an outburst. The speaker stood a moment longer in silence beside the figure in the chair, and it seemed to Robert, gazing at him with fixed eyes, that the man's whole presence, at once so homely and so majestic, was charged with benediction. It was as though invisible hands of healing and consecration had been laid upon him. The fiery soul beside him had kindled anew the drooping life of his own. So the torch of God passes on its way, hand reaching out to hand. He bent forward, stammering incoherent words of assent and gratitude. He knew not what. Mr. Gray, who had sunk into his chair, gave him time to recover himself. The intensity of the tutor's own mood relaxed, and presently he began to talk to his guest in a wholly different tone, of the practical detail of the step before him, supposing it to be taken immediately, discussing the probable attitude of Robert's bishop, the least conspicuous mode of withdrawing from the living, and so on all with gentleness and sympathy indeed, but with an indefinable change of manner, which showed that he felt it were well both for himself and Elsmere to repress any further expression of emotion. There was something, a vein of stoicism perhaps, in Mr. Gray's temper of mind, which, while it gave a special force and sacredness to his rare moments of fervent speech, was wont in general to make men more self-controlled than usual in his presence. Robert felt now the bracing force of it. 
Will you stay with us to dinner? Mr. Gray asked, when at last Ellesmere got up to go. There are one or two lone fellows coming. Ask before your telegram came, of course. Do exactly as you like. I think not, said Robert, after a pause. I longed to see you, but I am not fit for general society. Mr. Gray did not press him. He rose and went with his visitor to the door. Good-bye. Good-bye. Let me always know what I can do for you. And your wife. Poor thing. Poor thing. Go and tell her, Ellesmere. Don't lose a moment you can help. God help her, and you. They grasped each other's hands. Mr. Gray followed him down the stairs and along the narrow hall. He opened the hall door and smiled a last smile of encouragement and sympathy into the eyes that expressed such a young, moved gratitude. The door closed. Little did Ellesmere realise that never in his life would he see that smile or hear that voice again. End of Book 4, Chapter 27